This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 576 and we're welcoming back Dr. Alan Zelikoff. We pre-recorded this interview earlier this week. We also have a couple updates on the coronavirus issue. We're going to talk about coronavirus issues and answers. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at IAQA.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to John Lapotere. Indoor Air Quality Solutions, Winter Springs, Florida, who was first to identify alpha coronavirus, beta coronavirus, gamma coronavirus, and delta coronavirus as the four known genuses in the coronavirus family. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, March 6th, 2020, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's IAQ radio trivia question. What is the etymology of the word influenza? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. All right, before we get started today, uh, we're going to play back our interview with Dr. Zelikoff, but uh, we, we want to put up a couple of sites and, and some current statistics on what's going on with this whole coronavirus thing. Let's start with the Worldometer, which is uh, a site that the doctor recommended. We've currently got, what, 100,000 uh, coronavirus cases and 3,412 deaths. And, uh, you know, one of the things I just saw recently, Cliff, that I, I think we're going to have to follow as time goes on. There may be two variants on this uh, particular virus. Uh, they just had some information that came out. I think it was the Los Angeles Times had an article from uh, some, some researchers in China that feel like there's a second variant on this and that the second one might not be as um, problematic as the first. But we'll, we'll see. I don't want to put out any, any false information, but uh, you might want to check out that LA Times article. The second thing we've been getting a lot of calls about is the um, registered products for use on uh, coronavirus. And 
And we've got a link up here, um, and we'll, we'll make sure it's on the website and also in the blog for EPA's registered antimicrobial products for use against uh, the novel coronavirus, SARS, and COVID-19. Cliff, any comments on this? Well, no, I, I think what it is is that uh, these products have not necessarily been tested specifically against the new virus, but these are products that previously had claims for uh, being effective, proven claims, being effective against envelope viruses. And what the government is doing is they're kind of giving these people emergency permission uh, to, to sell and utilize products uh, you know, for the new virus because they figure it's highly likely that they're going to be effective. So, and there are quite a few products on the list, um, as you can see. So, in fact, I just recently talked to um, someone that works in infection control at a local hospital, and they switched over to a product that was on this list just to be on the safe side. That uh, they were they were using a product registered for this particular uh, use. So. I wanted to make sure we got that out to listeners. The other site we have pulled up here is the uh, barons.com article, which has a list of cancellations of conferences. And it's a big list. Um, Dr. Zelikoff in the interview talked about the American Society, I think, of physicists uh, canceling their conference here not too long ago. But now that there, the American Physical Society is on the list. There are numerous cancellations of conferences worldwide, and um, chances are this is just going to grow. So keep this in mind as you make your plans for your conferences or for attending conferences, etc. All right. So Dr. Alan Zelikoff is a physician, board certified in internal medicine. Um, he is also a physicist uh, from Princeton in 1975 who had a varied career, including clinical practice, teaching, and operations research. In the latter roles, he was a senior scientist in the Center for National Security and Arms Control at Sandia National Labs from 1989 to 2003. His interests include risk and hazard analysis in hospital systems and office-based practice and technologies for improving the responsiveness of public health offices and countering biological weapons terrorism. He has traveled extensively in the countries of the former Soviet Union, and has led joint research projects in epidemiology or infectious disease while establishing internet access at Russian and Kazakh, Kazakh laboratories, biological laboratories, that is. He is the author of numerous textbook chapters and articles on these subjects, frequent contributor to op-ed pages in the Washington Post and other papers, and Dr. Z has a book on this subject called Microbe are we ready for the next plague? We've done three other interviews with Dr. Zelikoff in the past. We always felt he gave really solid information without uh, panicking people or going overboard on things. So we brought him back to get his thoughts on this current issue, and uh, we're going to replay that right now. Welcome to IAQ Radio, Dr. Zelikoff. Actually, welcome back. It's great to have you back. It's been uh, a few years, and uh, we've had you here to talk about a few of these other somewhat epidemic-like situations, and uh, what, I'd, what I'd like to start with is um, this current one. Is the, the COVID-19 the same or different from the SARS, the H1N1, and the MERS outbreaks? Well, good morning. Uh, so the, the current uh, coronavirus is part of the coronavirus family of viruses, 
but they seem to be very different uh, from the uh, cold-causing coronaviruses. That is, the current SARS-CoV-2 is different from the uh, current, uh, from the well-known circulating corona cold-causing viruses. And also it's different from SARS-1 uh, in that it uh, does not appear to be nearly as fatal as SARS-1, but it transmits, it seems, much more readily. And the transmission is probably the key item that people are still trying very hard to get a handle on. Um, so for example, if you look at the ship that was in Tokyo, the cruise ship, the Princess Jean, uh, it appears that despite quarantining people in their rooms while waiting for people to get sick or not before letting them off the ship, there was still obviously transmission of the disease taking place, and that might have been from surface contamination. So when you, when you ask the, the correct but very difficult question of how does this differ, it seems to differ in terms of its severity, meaning it clearly causes symptoms much worse than the cold uh, causing coronaviruses. And it seems to be different in the way it transmits. So it seems to be much more transmissible than the, the previous SARS uh, coronavirus. And there remain a lot of unknowns here. Um, my guess, it's, it's really just a guess, is that we're going to find that there are many, many, many asymptomatic infections, meaning no symptoms at all. We're going to find that the overwhelming majority, 80% of people, maybe more, if they get symptoms, they're going to be mild. And we're going to find that um, there's always, as is always the case with influenza, there's a group of people who just don't do well. Sometimes we write this off as due to other underlying disease. Sometimes we simply do not know. Now, one other clear distinction is that this is not the influenza virus. So it... it um, may be more transmissible than the influenza virus. It may survive more on surfaces than the uh, influenza virus does. And of course, unlike influenza, uh, we have neither treatment nor prevention for the current uh, coronavirus infection, which is now called COVID, Coronavirus Infectious Disease 2019, and the virus is called SARS-CoV-2 to distinguish it from SARS-Coronavirus-1. Hmm. Why is it, and I don't know, this may be something that um, you may not know, and, and if so, I'm sure you'll tell us, but why is it that the viruses, as opposed to bacterial infections or fungal infections, seem to be so problematic when it comes to public health? Uh, it's largely because viruses are little packets of DNA that are in a box or little packets of RNA, genetic material that are in a box. So in and of themselves, they aren't doing much when they're just sitting around. They don't require, uh, for example, nutrition, water to survive on surfaces, whereas bacteria either survive or die or turn into spores, the latter is pretty rare. Um, and so uh, the, uh, the bacterial illnesses depend on having a host just about all of the time, the exception being the spore-forming uh, bacteria, like, uh, for example, anthrax. So you can think of a virus as a chunk of genetic material that's ready to do something, 
that's packaged in an envelope of some sort, the kind of the envelope varies dramatically. Um, and they're just sitting there and either uh, environmental circumstances, water, ultraviolet light, disinfectant, are going to denature that virus, meaning turn the shell into, into goop that is, is no longer protecting the genetic material. Or that virus can just sit on the surface uh, for a long time and then um, infect an unsuspecting person who comes along. Hmm. And you, know, you, you, me- you ahead, mentioned uh, the, the term envelope. And one of the terms you know that's used in, in, in referring to viruses is summer enveloped viruses, uh, and this particular one is, and others uh, are not. So could you clarify the difference between you, you said that they were in a box? Uh, would an env- would a non envelope virus also be in a box? The same. Right. Very good question. So I was using the the word envelope in a very generic sense, not the way you are using it, which is very sophisticated. And that's in the scientific sense or what the virologists would call an envelope, which is a particular kind of structure that you can see under the electron microscope. So um, think of the core of the virus as being generally genetic material, RNA or DNA. There might be an enzyme packaged with it that will Mm -hmm. translate that RNA or DNA. Uh, if it happens to get into a cell. Surrounding that is usually some kind of a protein shell. Um, And then surrounding that may be an envelope that varyingly is made out of lipids, which are sort of like fats, uh, or lipids and proteins. And why this happens, people often ask the question, how did this come to be? And the short answer is we have no idea. So in your... uh, Correct description, uh, viruses are often classified as whether or not they have envelopes, but from a kind of functional um, and admittedly simplistic description, uh, viruses are surrounded by something because genetic material that's naked, that's just lying around, tends to get chewed up very quickly in the environment. There are lots of enzymes that will chew up RNA or DNA. Hmm. I guess the next question. It is how would they how would they work, you know, in they when they got into the body? You know, I've been told or heard or taught that you know they'll get into the body and essentially they'll take over uh, DNA and then start replicating themselves. Is, it, it, would you agree with that? Is that what? Yeah, that's happens? a that's a pretty good description. So what appears to be required is uh, well, there's no question that the virus has to get into a cell in order to multiply. Okay. And its, uh, its reason for existence seems to be just to multiply. Um, okay. So how does it get into a cell? Well, that's, that's the $64,000 question, or with inflation, it's a $64 million question. Isn't it? <laughs> and so um, almost always, viruses on their surfaces have molecules. They're generally proteins, which means a sequence of amino acids. So they've got on their surfaces proteins that will bind to a specific molecule that's on the surface of cells. We've known this for influenza for, oh, the better part of 70 years, probably even longer than that. And with SARS-CoV-2, the current coronavirus, the protein on the surface of the cell is called a spike protein because underneath the electron microscope, it looks like a spike. And it binds to a molecule that is on the surface of lung tissue cells. Interestingly, not 
the airways that go down into the lungs, not the bronchial tubes, but on the surface of lung cells themselves, way down in the little alveoli and the little air pockets that are in the, in the cell, so uh, in the lung. And so the virus has on its surface a protein that has uh, a spe specificity for some sort of other molecule on the surface of a host cell. And in this case, it happens to be a molecule that's more or less unique, not completely unique, but more or less unique to lung tissue. Now, you may ask, why did evolution do this? Or if you're religious, why did God do this? And we have no idea. Hmm. And let's, let's talk a little bit about epidemiology and, and how epidemiologists fit into the picture when we're, we're talking about these types of outbreaks. So the word epidemiology comes from the word epi, which means next to or around, and demos, which is people. So it's the study of things around people. That's the, that's the uh, origin of the word. And what epidemiologists attempt to do is to characterize patterns of disease by gathering information about individuals, everything from age and gender, sometimes locale and race, uh, those can all be factors that result in either a, a infection with a bad outcome, an infection with a mild outcome, or an infection with no outcome at all. Now, epidemiology isn't strictly limited to infectious disease. We talk about the epidemiology, for example, of toxin exposure or air pollution. Uh, those aren't infectious diseases. Uh, but in the, in the context that we're discussing today, we're looking at patterns of spread based uh, on uh, risk factors that we can easily measure. And the reason for doing that is so you can then identify people who are most likely to come down with the infection, and even among those who do, who are most likely to have a severe uh, outcome from the infection. So epidemiology uh, has been around for a very long time. People have been writing about it, but it really became a formal science in the U.S. in the 1950s. Uh, hmm. The fellow who started the CDC, his name, I'm embarrassed to say, is now evading me, uh, established the Epidemiology Investigation Service, the EIS, which is what most uh uh, physicians and nurses who train at the CDC go through and they become EIS officers. So while people have been writing about patterns of disease for um, as long as people have been um, aware of disease, infectious disease, it's only uh, really since the 1950s that we've had uh, a formal epidemiologic um, service and science uh, in the United States. And it serves us very well especially when we're dealing with diseases that we don't have specific treatment for, because epidemiology can point at those risk factors that uh, call out the people who are most likely to be uh, ill and infected, and then you can intervene based on those risk factors. You mentioned that epidemiologists use statistics and that that's important in, in helping to you know, control infectious disease. I wonder if you could give us an example of what happens when it works right? Uh, a case study or a, a situation where we, you know, the epidemiologists and the CDC and everyone heard of a new disease and they stopped it in its tracks. I think the best example in our um, recent memory is the outbreak that took place here in New Mexico called the hantavirus outbreak. 
It's now called the Hantavirus Pulmonary Syndrome, or HPS for short, because it caused a, a vicious lung disease. So I'm going to set the stage for you because New Mexico is a bit unique in terms of its public health structure. In the, in the U.S., public health is a local responsibility. There is no federal department of public health. It is a state responsibility that then usually devolves down to the county level, like in Pittsburgh, the Allegheny County uh, Department of Health. Uh, or in New Mexico, we have, for all intents and purposes, one uh, health department, and it's, it's the state health department. And to the extent that it's distributed, all of the offices uh, of the New Mexico, all of the offices of public health that deal with uh, infectious disease or uh, environmentally associated disease are actually New Mexico Department of Health offices in all of the small towns and the big cities in Albuquerque. And the reason I'm mean, in New Mexico, and the reason I'm saying this is, we have a unique structure in that there is a very short reporting chain. If someone reports a disease uh, that they're suspicious of, for example, measles, or a set of signs and symptoms in somebody who's very ill for which the diagnosis is not known, the call goes to the New Mexico Department of Health. It doesn't go to the city, then to the county, then to the New Mexico Department of Health. And the story I'm about to tell you, I think, critically depended on that. Um, also, because we only have one health department, there is a uh, historically a very good relationship between the health department centered in Santa Fe, the capital of New Mexico, and a few physicians, mostly physicians who are interested in infectious disease around the state. So there are lots of personal relationships uh, among physicians, some nurses, but mostly physicians, and, uh, Santa, and New Mexico Department of Health Central. So the story goes like this. In 1994, a, uh, out on the uh, Navajo Reservation, which is in the northwest portion of the state, a young, healthy person came into the emergency room in Gallup Indian Medical Center. Gallup is a town about 120 miles west of here, uh, west of Albuquerque, that is right on the border, right on the edge of formally what is the, the Navajo Reservation. And this person was an otherwise healthy individual, came into the emergency room with obviously a bad pulmonary illness, coughing, fever, short of breath, and clear changes on the chest X-ray. Now, in New Mexico, we think of two diseases when that happens. Influenza, because it's common, and it can cause very bad disease in uh, young, healthy people, especially if the influenza virus has changed, as is the case with RNA viruses like influenza. Or plague, which I know is uh, not something that you deal with very much uh, in the northeastern portion of the United States, but we have, roughly speaking, a half a dozen cases of plague every year because it's endemic in ground squirrels, and it, from time to time, gets into the human population. <laughs> the physician who saw this case is a fellow named Bruce Tempest. He's still with us, possibly the best doctor I've ever met. Um, I had the privilege of working with him when I was an intern and resident. And the uh, patient that Dr. Tempest saw was very ill, and he, Dr. Tempest, was quickly able to determine this was neither plague nor influenza. So think about this for a second. You've got a young, healthy person who's come into the emergency room who was otherwise well 24 hours beforehand, 
who's going down very quickly and he doesn't have two big illnesses that can cause bad respiratory disease out here. And Dr. Tempest is a very wise man. And he said, there's something odd going on here. So he called up his colleagues in the New Mexico Department of Health. The fellow involved is a infectious disease uh, trained physician and molecular biologist by the name of Gary Simpson. He's also still with us, although now retired. And Gary agreed with Dr. Tempest. Um, I know them both uh, fairly well. I know Gary very well. And so Gary uh, determined that this was a syndrome, meaning a set of signs and symptoms, not a diagnosis, that needed further investigation. So he defined a case for the syndrome, which was young person who is otherwise well, who develops a bad pulmonary illness. Now, let's be clear. They had no idea what this was, none whatsoever. But it scared the living daylights out of both of them uh, because the concern was there was perhaps a new infectious disease or perhaps a toxin exposure. No one really knew. Within a few days, having made this definition clear to all of the Navajo uh, health hospitals, some number of cases, my recollection is it's about a half a dozen were identified in retrospect, meaning the New Mexico Department of Health and Dr. Tempest called around to all the hospitals in the Navajo area. It's a very big area uh, in northwestern New Mexico and Arizona and determined that there had been similar cases within the past few weeks. Well, now we knew we had an outbreak. Hmm. Um, and but for Dr. Tempest making that phone call and Dr. Simpson defining the syndrome that they wanted to know about, it might have well gone on for many more weeks. But having this case definition, it was possible to identify the other cases. And that immediately led the New Mexico Department of Health to send folks out to the households where these cases had taken place. By the way, indeed, some of these people had died um, and were undiagnosed when they died. <laughs> Upon visiting the homes, many of the homes were traditional Navajo homes. They're called Hogans. And they, uh, they're roundish um, small uh, one-room buildings. Uh, they're generally rural, uh, out in the middle of nowhere, where an entire family will live, um, several generations. And what was noticed was that in several of these homes, there were evident there was evidence of mouse droppings, uh, among some other indicators of of mice. So the hypothesis was raised that these mice might be carrying the disease. I am told also, and I haven't seen this independently verified, that it was noticed that young people tended to sleep on the floor and grandma slept on the few beds that were in the Hogan. And so there was one more link that suggested that intimate contact with mice might have something to do with this. Now, it just so happened that Dr. Simpson had a colleague at the, New at the University of New Mexico who was a field biologist. Um, and that field biologist had spent his career gathering uh, small animals and archiving them, literally freezing their bodies uh, in liquid nitrogen uh, right down the road here. Um, I could hit it with a rock, the Department of Biology at the University of New Mexico. <laughs> and they uh, 
consulted with the director of the uh, of the uh, archive, and he said, "You know, we know about a mouse that is common out here in the Southwest. It's not seen elsewhere. Let's take a look at what we have and see if there's any evidence, soever, that these mice might be carrying some infectious disease, bacterial, viral." And then the story started to uh, unravel very, or that started to come to a conclusion very quickly. They looked at uh, body parts of this mouse, the paramiscus mouse, under the electron microscope, and observed that in the bladder of these mice, there appeared to be viral inclusion bodies, which simply means the virus within the cells of the lining of the bladder of these mice. Within a few days, that virus was isolated. Um, it was in the class of viruses that is called the Hatan family, named after a viral illness that took place in South Korea during the Korean War, the Hatan uh, uh, virus uh, outbreak there. This turned out to be related to that. And within then uh, now not more than a couple of weeks, all of the cases were identified. The risk factors for acquiring it were identified, which is close contact with the paramiscus mouse, and the organism had been identified as well. So we were able to have a diagnostic test and do a very simple intervention, which, which was be careful, but clean up any mouse droppings or, or mouse nests. Don't sleep on the floor. And suddenly the number of cases went to zero. That is a triumph of public health. And what, what was required was a very short reporting infrastructure, no bureaucratic delay, intimate relationships between the Department of Health and physicians out in the community. And let me not underestimate this, the observation of a very bright doctor who said, something is odd here. And so with those three things, within two weeks, the virus was identified, the source of the virus was identified, the risk factors for acquiring the virus were identified, and so a simple intervention set of recommendations were rapidly promulgated, and what appeared to be a huge outbreak that was going to kill a lot of people went to zero in a couple of weeks. Hmm. Having said all of that, we still see an occasional case. It's usually in people who come across uh, a mouse nest in their garage, and they clean it up, aerosolize the virus, which is sitting on uh, the, the mouse nest just inanimately. They aerosolize the virus, and they breathe it in, and they get hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. We see a few cases uh, every year in New Mexico, but by and large, the fear that we had an enormous outbreak on our hands, the so-called Navajo flu, which was a very bad misnomer, went to zero. A hmm. dramatic example of what can happen when public health and medicine work together. And, and now that was something that could not be passed if from I person to person. Is that accurate? That's correct. It was not communicable from person to person. And thank you for pointing that out. There was a fear it was communicable from person to person. I mean, after all, there were occasional cases in the same household because they had the same common source exposure, which was the mouse, or its droppings, or its urine. Um, but it was, we were rapid, not we, I had nothing to do with it. I was watching this as a fascinated observer. 
we were uh, the the big brains at the New Mexico Department of Health and Dr. Tempest were able to I rapidly determine from epidemiology what are the links between people that this was not a person-to-person transmitted disease. And so I remember very clearly watching on TV right down the street here at the University of New Mexico Hospital, ambulances pulling up, bringing in people with respiratory failure, with everybody in masks and gowns for fear that this was a person-to-person transmitted disease. And that rapidly went away as well because epidemiology was able to unequivocally identify that there was very little, if any, risk of person-to-person transmission. All of this in a couple of weeks. Remarkable. So how... Let's look at the the current situation and and how that's developed and and what went wrong. Can you kind of give listeners a little idea of, uh, at least according to what you understand, obviously you weren't in China where this all started, but uh, you have a good idea of of kind of what went wrong and where we're at right now. I think it first has to be said that um, with the 2020 retrospectoscope, which is the finest tool in diagnostic medicine, we can look back and I think pretty unequivocally determine that um, the first case that caused suspicion of something new happening in China occurred sometime in early, maybe mid-December. And it really wasn't until mid-January that um, we uh, got word of this this outbreak. So um, I'm no expert on what happened in China, but I, I think there's more or less universal agreement that um, for whatever reason, the knowledge of uh, what appeared to be an unusual outbreak, meaning unusually severe and not influenza, was taking place in China in the middle of influenza season, and it wasn't influenza. That information should have come out. I don't really have any more information other than what I read in the newspapers and the medical journals about that. Now. Um, Once the information came out, and when it did come out at that time, I will give the Chinese um, medical system and public health system credit for having isolated the virus, sequenced its genetic material, and published all of that information online in a very short period of time. So they deserve a lot of credit for that. The importance of having the sequence, uh, literally the, the makeup of the genetic material, is that then you can A, develop diagnostic tests, and B, determine if you have an isolate in a laboratory, whether or not it's closely related to the one that was identified in China. So that that was key. Then what happened? Well, I don't think the story's particularly pretty, and it's it's not nearly as um, satisfactory Uh, as what happened with the hantavirus pulmonary syndrome uh, with public health in the United States. So unlike New Mexico, the overwhelming majority of states, California, for example, um, has dozens of public health departments. I used to know the number. I can't can't remember. It's a lot. Um, And it's a big state. And I don't have the sense that there is nearly the kind of intimate relationships between physicians and the local public health department as occurs here. So if you stop and think about this for a second, once it became clear that there were cases of a new infectious disease, we now call it 
COVID-19. It didn't have a name back back then in January. But if you stop and think about it for just a second, what's the likelihood that an infectious disease that is communicable from person to person wouldn't have been transported by people coming back from China uh, after the holidays, after our holidays, after Christmas and, and New Year's holiday. I'm not talking about the Chinese uh, Lunar New Year. Um, so uh, the chances that there would not be transmission, meaning a person bringing it into the United States after the holidays, the chances there would not be was zero, just because there probably tens of thousands of, of folks returning to the U.S., some students, for example, uh, returning to the U.S. Uh, for the beginning of uh, spring semester um, after the holidays. And um, now I'm just an observer sitting on the outside, um, and I don't know because I wasn't involved in what kind of discussions took place, but it seems to me that that should have immediately led to local public health departments, because that's what it is in California, county level, city level health departments, trying to get some idea of what the incidence of flu-like syndrome, flu-like symptoms uh, were um, in, in January. Now, that's a hard problem. It's hard for two reasons. First, there's a lot of influenza. And for, for all intents and purposes, no physician can look at somebody who has muscle aches, fever, and cough, and distinguish among the leading viral possibilities for this, influenza being the leading one, and we're right in the middle of influenza season, right at the peak of influenza season, and something new. So that's it's a hard problem. But the other important point is that there is nothing close to real-time surveillance that also includes just a tad of additional information that enables you to determine whether or not there's something odd going on that you need to worry about. What am I talking about? Travel history, for example. Whether or not a person has been uh, uh, vaccinated against influenza, which would obviously decrease the likelihood that somebody with flu-like illness, in fact, had flu influenza as the explanation. And, and finally, if, if a physician saw somebody, if a physician like Dr. Tempest, who saw somebody and said, there's something odd going on here, picked up the phone and called the local public health department, I think that physician would likely run into a bureaucratic quagmire. I could be wrong, but based on other outbreaks that we've seen, I think there's a bureaucratic quagmire, unlike what happens here in New Mexico where if you dial 1-800-PUBLIC-HEALTH and you're a physician or a nurse who wants to report something odd, you get the expert immediately. And don't think that that happens uh, in California. And even if it does at the county level, there's an inherent delay in getting that information from the county health department up to the central repository uh, of the state health department where information could then be collated. So there's, a, there's an inherent bureaucratic delay in getting these cases together, unlike what we have here in New Mexico. Hmm. And so even though I think most thinking people looking back on this and probably even then wondered, isn't it likely that we're going to see in our population what the Chinese are seeing in their population, if only because 
tens of thousands of Chinese are returning to the United States for business or school after the holidays, I don't think that even with that realization that public health officials were able to say, okay, let's determine a case definition, say flu-like illness in someone from China or who has traveled to China, and let's get real-time reporting on this. It just didn't happen. And unfortunately, that's the way it is in general with public health in the United States. Are there exceptions? Of course. With known diseases, reporting is pretty good because with known diseases, there's usually laboratory studies involved. Or there are very classic presentations. So what am I thinking about? Thinking about, for example, tuberculosis. We've got very good laboratory identification of tuberculosis. And there is no question that laboratories everywhere in the United States that do medical diagnostics report their results to the local health department or to the state health department. The only problem, of course, with laboratory stuff is that it's delayed. It takes days. And with a communicable infectious disease, days are too late. Hours matter. Days are too late. Hmm. If you have a classic presentation like measles, pediatricians are very good at diagnosing that disease. Although some who haven't seen it, and there are many who haven't, might be delayed. But once you've seen one case of measles, or if there's an old guy working in the clinic (laughs) who has seen measles before, that case immediately gets reported to local public health officials because it's a reportable disease. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a disease that's not reportable because we don't have laboratory um, uh, testing for it. We do now. It's slowly being uh, rolled out in the U.S., and we don't have a case definition for it, and we don't have syndromic surveillance. So when I say syndromic surveillance, I mean based on signs and symptoms with a little bit more uh, information that enables you to determine whether or not there's something odd going on here. Hmm. When I look back at the hantavirus outbreak and say, why haven't we introduced this kind of real-time reporting uh, on a systemic basis, I don't know the answer. And it it puzzles me that it hasn't taken place. What I am convinced of with regard to hantavirus is, but for the observation of one physician who was able to rapidly get the New Mexico Department of Health involved, we would have had substantially more people dead and a lot of fear and loathing uh, as a result. Fortunately, um, we had a great public health system and and a doctor who was sure that he was seeing something that just needed further investigation. That's a hard thing to do in a big state, for example, like California. Hmm. Cliff, did you have a a question? I I, I do. I do. One of the things that you said just set off an alarm bell for me uh, earlier. You know, you talked about where they were finding uh, the virus in people's lungs, the fact that it was down in the alveoli. And one of the thoughts was that, you know, in indoor environmental uh, world, we're very concerned about uh, particles uh, 2.5 and and, and smaller microns. And it would seem to me that, you know, the one thing that alarmed me was the fact that this could be present in dust uh, as well. And, uh, you know, that's something else that I'm going to advise people to 
be careful on if you agree that perhaps uh, this could be in dust and inhalation would be one way that uh, you know people could become infected besides just touching surfaces. That's a perfectly valid hypothesis, and um, I have to believe that folks studying this virus are, are looking at whether or not there is aerosol spread. You defined it very well, two and a half microns or less. Um, and I just don't know if there's um, any new data. I mean, as of a few days ago, I try to follow this stuff on a daily basis. I haven't seen uh, anything that suggests that we know that to be the case. Um, you may ask, well, if it has to get down into the lungs, does it have to be inhaled uh, in an airstream as an aerosol to get down into the lungs? And the answer appears to be no, it doesn't. No, right. So how does the virus get from doing this, rubbing your nose, if your fingers are contaminated and get down into the lungs, I don't think we know the answer to that. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to postulate a clear, a clear mechanism. So could it be an aerosol? Yes. Um, do we know it's an aerosol? We know with SARS-CoV-1, the first SARS, it clearly was an aerosol um, that was probably generated as a result of the invasive intubation of people who were, um, uh, dying and needed uh, respiratory support with a ventilator um, that clearly aerosolized the virus in, it, uh, in SARS-1 and it clearly infected people in the healthcare setting. Is that happening now? Seems to be happening that healthcare workers are at much higher risk than non-healthcare workers for getting the virus, but is that via an aerosol? I wish I could say. If I could say with, with certainty, I, I obviously would, but I don't know the data yet. I'm curious what your thoughts are on some of the, the theories, and I don't know if this has been proven yet, on, on where this virus came from in the first place. Well, it, it certainly appears to have an animal reservoir. By and large, what the virologists tell us is that the coronavirus is a, coronaviruses as a naturally occurring virus circulate within uh, bats and maybe some mammals. Um uh, the SARS coronavirus appears to uh, be endemic in the bat population where it appears to cause minim, minimal symptoms, if any, uh, among bats. So my, my, my guess is that this one will be more or less definitively shown to be endemic uh, in the bat population, and, and bats are mammals after all. Um, and beyond that, um, we know that large anim larger animals can uh, acquire SARS-1, and I'll be unsurprised if it turns out we definitively identify a larger animal with, with SARS-2. Um, maybe to, to answer your question just a little bit more specifically, one might ask, is, is the human population required for the continual survival uh, of the virus in a, in, a, uh, in a pure survival sense? Uh, or are humans just incidental hosts? And, and it appears that humans are incidental hosts. Now, remember, the other coronaviruses that cause colds, I think the number is about 30% of colds are due to related, but obviously not nearly as serious cold viruses that are coronaviruses. Maybe, maybe those coronaviruses require humans as their host in order to continue to, to survive in the, in the environment. But I don't think that'll be the case with SARS-CoV-2, the, the one we're dealing with now. Hmm. Cliff? Um, I, I guess 
you know, as a physician, knowing what you know, um, you know, it seems that you have some concern about COVID-19. And, you know, what what's really your biggest concern? You know, maybe not for you personally, but, you know, for the United States. You know, what's your biggest concern? So aside from the obvious that I think a lot of people are going to get infected, I'll be I'll be very surprised if there aren't tens of millions of people in the United States infected, the overwhelming majority of whom are going to have mild symptoms. But right. a few percent of tens of millions is a lot of people who are going to be critically ill or, or perhaps dying as a result of, of right. this illness. So my additional concern beyond that, uh, one that I've, I've heard talked about only a bit, is what happens with this virus going forward? Does it mutate? In general, this is a very general statement, and it's a, it's a bit sloppy, but I think it's, it's valuable. RNA viruses, as opposed to DNA viruses, mutate a lot. The reasons for this gets down into the, into the virologic weeds, but essentially when replication of RNA takes place, it's relatively error-prone within a cell. So when cells get infected with the virus and the virus literally takes over the machinery of the cell, the uh, uh, objective of the virus is to have more RNA made. And that RNA is then the core of new virus particles that butt off the cell. In the process of making that RNA, mutations take place, errors take place. Um, We know that this is already the case because if you saw in the in the news uh, just a couple of days ago, virologists up in Washington State were able to state that based on the isolates from the patients in Washington State, who obviously have occurred about four or five weeks after the ones in California, the um, a virus has changed. And based on uh, the knowledge that the virologists have of the rough mutation rate of this virus. They were able to count the number of mutations. This is a little bit sloppy, but it's essentially what they did. They counted the number of mutations, and they determined that this virus had probably been around for about six weeks in Washington State, which fits pretty closely with people coming back to the west coast of the United States from Northeast Northeast Asia after the holidays. And they were able to do that based on counting the mutations and knowing the mutation rate. My point here is it's mutated. Now, that always scares people. Um, I'm not here to tell you that I know that those mutations are going to create a virus that causes worse disease, meaning worse symptoms or a high, higher likelihood of needing to be hospitalized or being critically ill. I don't know. Um, there's no reason uh, to assume that um, it, it will be worse, uh, but I worry because since the virus in and of itself doesn't require humans as a host, um, that disease could get worse in any individual. And as long as that now worse virus gets transmitted from one person to another, that now worse virus, that mutated virus, is survival. Um, I don't want to scare people. I'm not panicked about this, but that's in answer to your question, that's what I'm keeping my eye on. How much is this virus mutating and to the extent that it does, is it causing worse disease? And then one last thing, and I'll, 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 I'll stop the science fiction or what appears to be science fiction. Um, 
when mutations take place, usually they're lethal for the virus. So a mutation takes place in the RNA, and that makes the virus unfit for a lot of reasons uh, to either infect or if it does infect, to then reproduce again. So most mutations, and this is certainly the case with influenza, result in a dead end for the virus. Um, so no one should go away from this, from this um, particular program thinking that we're doomed to find some new Andromeda strain. Uh, nonetheless, I think all the virologists are keeping their eye on what's happening with the mutation rate of the virus, and is it creating a virus uh, clone that somehow behaves differently from the one we now are characterizing based on the epidemiology we have? And I, I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I'm keeping my eye on it. I'm wondering, do, do you, how do you feel about the United States resources, um, our, our medical community? Uh, are, do we have the resources to deal with this outbreak, and where are our weakest links? I unquestionably think the weakest link is that we don't have real-time data to know what's going on. Um, now, to some extent, that is going to be addressed uh, as the test kits roll out. I saw a report on, um, on, on one of the medical sites that something like a million test kits are being produced this week and will be distributed across the country. That will help. Um, but that's only going to help when people are tested. And, of course, the first people that are going to be tested are the ones who are symptomatic. And the question remains, what about asymptomatic people who can transmit the disease? So our biggest... Our biggest um, um, deficit is is that uh, we don't have enough information about how the virus is distributed in the population. Um, now, if you look at the other extreme of once people become ill and are taken care of by the medical community, uh, do we have the resources to deal with it? And that's a complicated question. And do we have the trained people who can be knowledgeable in dealing with these folks who are critically ill? We most certainly do. Do we have the ICU beds to take care of the, what is it, three, four, five percent of people who get infected and become symptomatic who then go on to become critically ill? That's a tougher problem. There are something like 85,000, maybe 90,000 ICU beds uh, in the United States. That is across the entire country. And if you stop and think about it, if you've ever been to a hospital, you know that um, those ICU beds are usually full, and that's because hospitals try to run lean for the obvious reason that having an ICU bed that's um, not being used is a big overhead expense to hospitals. My point simply is that there's only a very small um, surge capacity for uh, treating people who are extremely uh, ill. And this has been recognized by disaster planners around the United States for a long time. And it's just very difficult to deal with. It's one thing to say, well, we need more ICU beds and we need respirators or maybe more importantly, we need the personnel, nurses, intensivists and physicians, primarily nurses, who are available and trained to handle folks who are in ICU beds, particularly if they're on respirators. That's a very exacting. And the nurses who do respirator care uh, along with the physicians who, who do it, are very well-trained individuals. And I, off the top of my head, I don't know how many of them are, but my, my sense is that you can't just call up some nurses and have them come in and man ICU beds. 
I think they too are at a premium. Um, and so we have very little in the way of personnel surge capacity and respirator surge capacity, at least based on kind of the first order uh, descriptions of what you see in the literature. Now, I, I think that the real problem is going to be if it becomes necessary to uh, restrict movement because the virus is highly communicable and is clearly spreading through the community, will we be able to do anything that even approaches the kind of the word that's used as lockdown? Um, unfortunate term, but a real term in China. Uh, your guess is as good as mine on that. My, my strong sense is that we're not able to do that. Um, so therefore, I think what will happen will be there'll be a strong recommendation should this become um, widely, widely spread in the community, it's probably already happened, but sort of become blatantly obvious that this is widely spread in the community, uh, I think the recommendation will go out that, that people uh, try to stay at home, um, and that's hard. So uh, the preparation then really comes down to individuals, and you've seen the CDC and the current administration kind of dance around this issue. What, is, what does preparation mean? Well, we don't get a clear answer, and we should. Uh, let me cut to the chase and say, if people want a clear answer on what individual preparation means, look at the BBC website and just type in coronavirus, and you'll see clear, concrete recommendations of what it means to be prepared. Here's where it basically comes down to. Have a couple of weeks of non-perishable food at home. It's a no-regrets uh, uh, preparation. You're going to use the pasta and, and dried beans eventually. Make sure your medicines are filled up to date. Um, have paper products that you use frequently. You know what I'm talking about. Have the usual cleaning stuff around. Just have it around. And if this turns out to be a lot more benign than we're now worried it might otherwise be, what's the regret there? You're going to use that stuff uh, anyway. And you would avoid the potential of there being a, a, a high demand at pharmacies and at grocery stores that we can't fill. The other stuff that's on the BBC website is what does it mean to isolate? What do you do if you have someone in your household who is ill and presumably has coronavirus or maybe someone who's been tested and is shown to have coronavirus? And the BBC website, which all comes from the National Health Service at the in, in Britain, lays this out in very concrete terms. So there's no weaseling on the BBC website. And uh, they make one other very key point that I, I think uh, gets slopped over here in the United States. If you get sick and you have flu-like illness, but you're not in desperate straits, they make it clear that the one thing you don't want to do is to go to your doctor's office or the emergency room because you'll only end up spreading the virus if you do that. And if you're not really sick, having difficulty breathing, for example, is there anything that can be done for you that will prevent you from getting into that critically ill group? At the moment, the answer is no. Hmm. Now, that could change. Treatment, as opposed to prevention from vaccine, could change in the next few weeks. And here's where I'm cautiously optimistic. There are about a half a dozen antiviral drugs that are used for other viruses that are now being used to treat people with known coronavirus. 
we will know in a couple of weeks whether or not any of these antiviral drugs are useful in coronavirus. We know that some antiviral drugs, for example, are useful in influenza. They definitely shorten the course of disease and they result in a small but appreciable decrease in the number of people who end up critically ill. So we will know that, but back to the chase, go to the BBC website if you wanna be prepared and just type in coronavirus and you'll know what preparation means. Why we haven't gotten similar clear, spelled out, two syllable explanations for what to do to be prepared is beyond me. I, I don't understand why that hasn't come down. Maybe it will this week. I haven't seen it yet. I'm wondering two things. One, when people have the mild symptoms, does and, and let's say they're in contact with other people and someone else gets the virus from them, that does that necessarily mean the symptoms will be mild in the person that gets it from this person who has the mild symptoms? Are you a virologist? Did you go to medical school? That I do a not. That's <laughs> question. Um, no, but it does not necessarily mean that they'll have mild symptoms if they get the virus from somebody who also has mild symptoms. Is it somehow more likely that they'll uh, have mild symptoms? Well, if you believe in the mutation business that I referred to a few minutes ago, maybe there are um, subtypes of the virus that do in fact cause milder disease. I don't see any reason to assume that um, at the moment. And for, for other reasons, I, I don't think that's necessarily the way the virus is going to evolve in, in time here. You have to look at this kind of from the standpoint of uh, the survival of, of the virus. Now, viruses don't have brains. They're not conspiring to, to be worse or, or less worse in terms of the symptoms. All that matters is, is a particular subtype of the virus, let's say one that causes more or less likely to um, uh, survive, that is, get passed on to other people. Um, and we don't know the answer to that question. In general, with viruses or any infectious agents that are from the animal population that infect humans, so-called zoonotic diseases, and this is one, in general, zoonotic diseases are bad. Why? Because if the virus doesn't uh, transmit from one person to another person because it kills the person, that uh, has the virus, is there any question that there aren't other ways for the virus to continue in the environment? Of course not. There, it's in the animal population, it's endemic. So the, the, there's, a, there's a subgroup of, of uh, biologists, they're called evolutionary biologists, and they wrestle with this question. And they ask the, they, they ask the, the question, if, if, a, if a particular infectious agent causes really severe disease such that that individual can't go on to infect someone else, well, isn't it pretty clear that the virus, that particular subtype of the virus comes to an end? And the answer in general to that question is, yeah. Um, but if people are very close together, uh, big venues, hospitals, uh, shopping malls, uh, and someone has a subtype of the virus that causes really severe disease just due to a random mutation, in that environment, is there any question whatsoever that the virus is going to get into somebody else? No, there's no question. They will. That virus will get into somebody else, and that's precisely what we saw in 1918. 
So think about influenza in 1918. We had barely gone to, uh, gotten to the point in biology where we knew about infectious agents. That came about in the late 1800s. We had no idea what viruses were. No, you couldn't see them under the microscope. And there's a very compelling hypothesis that suggests that the reason the 1918 influenza virus was so severe was because it had a change that made it infectious, that caused severe disease. And then what did we do? We put people together, troop ships, hospital wards. Some people would say tenements in New York City where it was guaranteed that if this severe, I'm going to call it subtype, it's a sloppy term, but for, for our purposes, I think is, is useful. Some subtype of the virus that caused severe disease. Was there any question that the guy sleeping next to you in the hull of a troop ship was going to get the virus and then pass it on to someone else? There's no question. That's the reason that epidemiologists and public health people refer constantly to social distancing. It's not only a question of getting people to not spread the virus. There's also an evolutionary biology reason for doing it, which is that it's more likely that if people are up and around, it's because the virus is causing less severe disease. But the one thing you don't want to do is to have the subtype of the virus that causes severe disease in somebody who is intimately in contact with someone else. So it gets really complicated very quickly. And the, the mathematicians try to model this stuff. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that if you put people really close together, you select for a virus that causes very severe disease because it multiplies more. That's why it causes more severe disease. And if they're real close together, they can spread it from one person to another. Hence the reason for moving people. Yeah, I, I guess here's a question for you. If, if your wife wanted to go to a spa or beauty parlor or whatever, uh, would you let her go? To a beauty parlor? Sure. Yeah. Why? Because the number of people that that's there is, is small. So it's, it's pretty easy to do an approximate you know, a statistical calculation that asks the question, let's say you believe that one in a thousand people in your community is infected and, and they don't know it. Let's assume that that's the number. Probably not a bad guess. I don't know for sure. Hopefully we'll know more at the end of this right, week right. or next week. So then you can ask yourself the question, well, if there are 10 people around you, how likely is it that at least one person is going to be infected? And I've done the math on this. It's pretty simple math. And the answer is it's at most a few percent. So if, if one in a thousand people are ill and you're in a room with 10 other people, presumably none of them are coughing, but they could still be infectious. Mm -hmm. How likely is it that any of them have the infection? You know, it's at most a few percent. I'd go to the movies because at least out here, movie theaters aren't packed. Would I go to a... Uh, carnival-like celebration where there are 10,000 people around me um, at a Mardi Gras celebration? I wouldn't. Would I go to a baseball game? I'd kind of think about it. I'd be a little reluctant to do it. Uh, would I go to a shopping mall if I had to? But I certainly wouldn't go to an airport this week. And it's not because I'm worried about inhaling the air in the airport, although that's a concern. But think about all the surfaces in an airport that are touched by literally thousands of people. Think of Pittsburgh International mm -hmm. Airport. Yeah. 
there are tens of thousands of people in that building. Uh, tens of thousands, I'm sorry, tens of thousands of people move through that building every day and they inadvertently contaminate surfaces. Um, I think it's to be avoided. I'm not suggesting that people not travel at all because sometimes it's necessary to do so. But I would sure avoid non-essential travel. And to just make that point clear, people who know how to do arithmetic have decided that. And specifically, I'm referring to an announcement that came out from the American Physical Society just this week. These are physicists. They know how to add. And they know what an exponential curve is. And they have their annual meeting, 10,000 people from around the world. Every year, about this time, it happens to be scheduled in Denver. And they canceled the meeting. And they gave their reasons why on their website. And the short answer for why is because they know how to add. And I know I'm being a little pejorative here. But they understand what an epidemic growth curve is. And they understand the risk of getting an infection. And they know the probability among 10,000 people that no one or only a few people are infected with this virus is about zero, meaning a few percent of those people of those 10,000 are infected for sure. There's no question about it. And they're all going to be in the same rooms, in the same conference rooms. And so they canceled their meeting because they know how to add. Um, and I suggest that other people take a look at what real scientists have concluded and ask themselves, do I really need to go to that meeting? Do I really need to make that trip? I mean, if the answer is you need to, then you're taking a risk. It's not extremely high, but it's one of those high consequence events if it takes place. And that would be my best answer for it. All right. Well, thank you. I, if I could get one final question in. I have a lot of family that works in hospitals, mm-hmm. and I wonder if you could give them some advice for how, I mean, they're, they're not going to quit their job. They, they, in fact, are going to be more important than ever right now. Um, mostly they're in the medical billing or my sister does um, MRIs and things of that nature. What kind of advice would you give a family member that's working in a hospital right now? So first I want to say the nurses and doctors are heroes, um, maybe particularly the nurses, because they have much more a direct contact with people in the hospital than most physicians do. There are exceptions, of course. Okay, so uh, let's let's remember these folks are, are the true heroes in all of this. Um, with regard to people who don't have direct patient contact, it appears to be the case that the single greatest risk for getting infected is contaminated surfaces. Are we sure of that? No. Do we know that the air handling systems in every hospital filter out all aerosolized particles? No, but they're pretty good. So the advice I would give them is to frequently hand sanitize, um, particularly when you go to the bathroom, because inevitably those surfaces get contaminated with who who knows what. And the the janitorial staff can't keep it clean on a minute-by-minute basis. They might be able to do it on an every-few-hour basis. So when touching a surface outside your office desk, it's probably reasonable to to hand sanitize because we all do this. Um, We all touch our our face dozens of times a day. I would also tell people about the things that we're pretty sure don't work. There's no utility to masks if you're not in a direct patient care environment, Um, particularly just the plain old surgical masks. Uh, to the extent that they work at all, it's not because of 
preventing you breathing stuff in. It's because if you have a surgical mask over your face, it's less likely you're going you're gonna to touch your face, although people do all the time. And I don't know anybody who can wear an N95 respirator uh, for, for eight hours. Maybe some people can. Uh, certainly most of us can't. And those are the respirators that have a really tight fit. So I think the simple, uh, obvious thing is hand sanitizing, uh, particularly when you use public facilities like, like a bathroom. Um, not doing stuff that's going to make you miserable, like wear a mask. And then one last thing. If you haven't been vaccinated against influenza, boy, I can't think of an excuse now that makes any sense for not being vaccinated against influenza. Is that going to help with coronavirus? Not directly. But if you get ill and you've been vaccinated against influenza, you now fall into a category of maybe being at higher risk for having coronavirus as the explanation for your illness. And that might lead to testing and it might lead to isolation a little bit more, more quickly. Does that help? Yes, it does. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us. I know you've got to run. Anything you'd like to add before you go? No, I thank you for the opportunity. And if people have questions um, and they want to send them in, I'll be I'll be happy to do my best to to try to answer them. But understand, sometimes that answer is going to be we just don't know. And I'm 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 not in the business of speculating. Thank you, Doctor Alan Zelikoff. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. Thank you. Always a pleasure. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Take care. Okay, so that concludes today's interview with Dr. Alan Zelikoff. We uh, recorded a little earlier in the week. I will take any questions that were sent, or if you want to email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, we'll forward them to Dr. Zelikoff, and we will continue to follow up as time goes on on this particular topic. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to John. You got to have faith at the controls. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday at noon. I haven't quite finalized next Friday's show yet, but I've got a couple good ones uh, potentially coming up. So check, uh, check out the website or keep an eye on your email for the show announcement. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.